Hi guys, and welcome back to another exciting episode with Third Culture Africans. My guest this week is Zuki Swavana, and she's an incredible human being. Um, I've seldomly sat with a guest that I don't enjoy, and so I feel like I'm repetitive when I say I've really enjoyed sitting with a guest, but I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Zukiswa and just her outlook and modest nature. She's incredibly inspiring, astute, and incredibly candid. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with her and delving into her work and her world. Welcome to another episode of Third Culture Africans. I am your host, Zezo Sal. I created the show as a resource for our community of Africans and African diaspora. A safe and honest place to share, inspire, motivate, and most importantly, celebrate those in our communities doing purposeful work and shifting the needle on our culture. Your support is invaluable to the show, so please subscribe or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform. You are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started. Thank you, Zikiswa, for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. A pleasure, Zizi. Thank you for having me. The intro I have for you here, I would love to add on extra bits to it because I feel like your work reflects having other bits other than just being an author, a publisher, an editor, a curator. And I want to kind of throw in a feminist, if I can, because I think your body of work speaks to, and humanitarian, actually, if I could throw that in. That is so generous, but I'm not, I don't think I'm much of that, you know? Suddenly you can't be a humanitarian on a writer's budget. Well, <laughs> well definitely not in, in, in the financial way, but I think from a, from a, I guess your literary contribution speaks to aspects of I guess the better part of human nature, right? And being able to draw our tensions in conversation around topics that, you know, we should be having and and questioning when it comes to identity. But to throw it in, you were born in Zambia. You're South African, born in Zambia, studied in Hawaii. Well, I'm South Africa I'm South African Zimbabwean. My mom is Zimbabwean. Okay. My dad is South African. Okay. And then how did you end up in Hawaii? It's the only place that I knew that my parents didn't have any friends. No way. <laughs> like my parents have friends everywhere. My parents had friends everywhere. So so every time I, I just thought like I needed to find a place where I could go without and just be a regular teenager without and some aunt or uncle having to check up on me easily. And when you say your parents knew everyone who were your parents? They were just regular people. But my dad was, both my dad and my mom were political activists for their different countries. And then after Zimbabwean independence, my mom worked for a while at the deputy prime minister's office. And then she worked at the Ministry of Information. So because she was working at the Ministry of Information and dealing with public relations in particular. She had this thing where she would clear journalists who were coming into Zimbabwe. She would do the whole protocol thing with like guests of state and stuff. So she literally knew everybody, (laughs) you know? Well, I guess speaking about, I guess, political and things like that, let's just 
talk about the elephant in the room. You co-authored Nelson Mandela's autobiography, Prisoner's Home. I did more than that. <laughs> oh, yes. Tell me more. I have actually recently come out with a children's book with Pushkin Press in London of the Black Pimpernel, Nelson Mandela on the Run. Amazing. So, yeah, which just figured out on his time when he was underground just before he got arrested. And then before that, it was his autobiography, A Prisoner's Home, in 2000. 2010. 2010. And then your first novel comes out in 2006. And then four years later, you're co-authoring Nelson Mandela's autobiography. Yes. Okay. (laughs) If I can do that, right? Let's rewind because for anyone out there is thinking, oh my God, four years. One, I don't think it happens in every career, which says there's something incredibly special about you. But I want to kind of rewind to when you knew for the first time that you wanted to be an author. And then we'll, we'll delve into all your different hats as we as we go along. But, you know, let's throw it out there, cut out the bag. In four years, you went from releasing your first novel to being a co-author of probably one of the most notable Africans in history. Right. When did I know I wanted to be an author? <laughs> I think I only knew it when I held a copy of my first book in my hands. And I'll tell you why. Initially, my whole thing is I wanted to be a journalist and speak truth to power. And that's what I studied. And then I came back home to South Africa, you know, after my dad died in 2003. And I came to bury him. And then I decided that I was going to stay. And I stayed And I was looking for jobs left, right, and center at newspapers. I wasn't lucky. It was crazy because I had journalist friends who were quite happy to buy me wine, but not to to put a word in for me to get a job, you know? (laughs) So what ended up happening is that I was doing some volunteer work in Soweto. There's a lady who, she works with HIV orphans. And what I used to do is, we usually are staying with, you know, with their grandmothers and aunts. And I used to go there and I'd help out to try and uh, get the children IDs and, you know, certain documentation so that they could start school. And because sometimes when you go to official places, they're very dismissive of grandmothers and who don't know how to maneuver their way around. But then when you go there and you're vocal and you're and you speak English with an accent or something, they will suddenly like stand up and not talk, not, take notice. And so while I was at this place, I met a photographer of Kumalo who had come to see somebody. And I knew who he was. And I said to him, I really think that if I learned photography, it could enhance my portfolio. So I wonder whether it's possible for me to come and join you, whether there's somewhere that you could recommend for me to learn photography. So not even the thought of words at this point. This is just something creative. Wow. Yeah. So I'm thinking, well, you know, if I have photography and then I have the words, you know, then maybe I can be like looking at where I pitch myself as a freelancer who is able to write the pieces as well as do the photography. So he said, yeah, actually, I have a space. I've got a place where somebody is teaching photography and you can come for the classes. 
And I said, okay, great. So the next day he called me and then I went to this place and I found it. And I don't know what it was. I took my journalism portfolio with me. So I left the journalism portfolio while I was going to be shown around where the photography and the studio and everything was. And while I was there, they had like some funders from Italy and he was flipping through my portfolio and I came out and he says, I know you came to learn photography, but we really absolutely need an archivist and somebody to do our public relations. And I was like, will you pay me? And they said, yes. So yeah, I was like, okay, fine. You know, at least that means I have an income and stuff. So I started working there and uh, it was through being there that I I met the late Louis Nkosi, who was like a literary critic and an author as well and an academic. Louis Nkosi, you know, of course, was a drum era journalist as well and drum era writer together at around the same time with Alf Kumalo. Yes. So we went for some bribe because we're celebrating Alf's 50 years in photography. Then Louis and I exchanged contacts. So I would every now and again send him pieces that I'd written, like little opinion pieces about different things. And so he said to me, you know, you really should consider writing fiction. And up until today, I'm not really sure whether it was because my nonfiction was was horrendous. <laughs> you know, because because he died before he ever answered that question. And I always used to give it to him, you know, but I, I just shrugged. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm too much of a realist to write fiction, which is kind of like the type of thing that really moronic people say and I think in reflection I sounded very stupid <laughs> anyway and then, <laughs> and then I saw him again later on and it was a Joburg Art Gallery at an exhibition because I do love art in all its many forms and so it was an exhibition of Dumile Feni's work and he introduced me to somebody and he said oh this is one of the best young writers we have in the country today and said this guy gave me his card he had a publishing company for nonfiction stuff and he said, send me your stuff. So I sent him a couple of pieces and, you know, all the best parties, you know, you, you've stayed in Joburg, all the party, best parties in Joburg happen on Thursday. Yes, they do. <laughs> the weekend so, starts on Thursday. So that was a Thursday. So as soon as I got to, to the office, because at that time, uh, I didn't even have my own computer or anything. I couldn't afford it. So I immediately sent my email to this guy. And a week later, he had emailed me back and he said, I really like your style of writing. You should consider writing fiction. And I was like, oh, that's Second person telling me this now. Exactly. So what I then thought about it, I thought, I thought of this as a bit of a challenge. So I started writing the first draft of what became the madams over a space of two weeks. And please note, I was doing this at work because I didn't have a computer. So every time the boss was coming, I would <laughs> you change, change the screen. <laughs> wow yeah and then you know i finished this i sent it to another old friend of mine and he was a retired journalist and i said can you read this and he read it and then his daughter-in-law read it and then he called me baby i said yes and he says this is some of the best stuff i've ever read you know well he used it that other s word but and then i said oh thank you very much and he said he's sending his driver with a list of publishers so he sent his driver with a list of publishers and he also made some suggestions for changes. And I did that and then I sent it to the five publishers and then three of them accepted it. And the rest, as I say, is history. Now, at any point in your education, were you told, like, were you good at comprehension? Like, were you told, oh, you know, you're good at this or 
you know, like, was there any indication before those experiences that said, you know, your words could move people? Well, I enjoyed literature a lot. I've always enjoyed literature. I've always been in a house of readers. And I've always, like, I remember, I think I must have been 10 or something. The Zimbabwe International Book Fair used to be really big because I spent my early years in Zim before South Africa sanctions were lifted against the ANC. So Zimbabwe International Book Fair was amazing. And I remember seeing the late Asnath Boleo Daga, who became a very good family friend of ours to the point my mom used to go and see her in Kisumu in Kenya. And also like seeing Amata Idu. And at that time, I was kind of surprised because I thought all writers were men, apart from Enid Blyton who I didn't think really exists. So it was like I was seeing black women who were writers and it was so amazing. And then we got like the books and stuff and we had the books in our house. And so it was nice. And then like a few years later, Cecilia Garembo came out with Nervous Conditions, which just like was mind blowing, you know? And then you had like people like Shima Chinojga. And I think perhaps he's one of those people who influenced me in a certain way because when I read Harvest of Thorns, I realized that you could really talk about very serious issues, but in a humorous way, without making the reader feel like you're beating them on the head with morality and all that stuff, you know? So just for context, in terms of time, because Nervous Conditions was first published in 88, 1988. Uh-huh. I was 12 years old. So for our listeners who aren't clear on, I guess, the apartheid era and some of the restrictions around even just access to literature or books that was censored, right, for a very long time. No, Nervous Conditions was in Zim, so that was fine because Zimbabwe had been independent for like eight years by then. Okay, so this is post their independence now. Yeah, this is post Zimbabwean independence in 1988 because Zimbabwean independence was 1980. And so this was like very affirming because it was said during the war, but it was written actually after the war. So it's a bit like when Adichie wrote, you know, Half of a Yellow Sun, for instance. And so you, you, you take that... And then you begin this incredible career, which from the sounds of it, you've, you've used the word luck, which I would love to unpack with you at some point, because I think luck is a very modest way of describing your career, considering that you're one of you know Africa's 100 most influential Africans. You're the first woman to ever win the Gothi medal. And you've done some incredible, incredible work. But I want to take us into, and I'm jumping around a bit, but you still play around with your journalism dream till today. Yes, I do. <laughs> where, where you get to moonlight, writing for, for pretty much a lot of African and non-African sort of columns, True Love, The Guardian, New York Times, Mail and Guardian, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But sort of around that, the one thing you've done is very much be vocal about this whole African writer, African culture, what that actually means in terms of an identity as a literary. And I say this because I've, I've written here, like, what is the debate, question mark, because European writers write about Europe. Why is there this big conversation about African writers writing in the same way. Exactly. No, I have talked about it at length and I've said, I don't want people to refer to me as an African writer when I'm on this continent. I'm just a writer, you know. What you call it is, Ian Flaming is, is a European writer, <laughs> you know, a British writer when I'm here, you know. Uh, and Blighted is a European writer, but I'm just a writer. I'm the average 
person on this continent, even if we look at statistics, African women, you know, majority of the population are African women. So that actually makes me the standard. So if a white man is on this continent and writing on this continent, then they are a white male writer, you know, full stop. They're not the standard, you know. And so that's the same thing with the whole African writer thing. I think it ghettoizes, you know, because we also don't refer to an American writer, a European writer. But beyond that, there is also the thing that we ourselves have also internalized our own oppression. And I'm talking about people in the book market. So you go to a bookstore in Joburg and you have seen this and there will be a section called Africana, which is the weirdest thing because if you're in Africa, shouldn't the majority of books be from Africa and then... Shouldn't they just be books? There's European novel fiction, nonfiction. Yeah. No, but I'm saying, you know, it makes more sense to me if we actually had like a little shelf with Europeana and Asiana and, uh, and, and Americana or whatever, you know, as opposed to the fact that you are ghettoizing everything from Cape to Cairo, you know, and Morocco to Madagascar in this little section that you call Africana. Agreed. And, and I think the communication thereof says something, right? And you know, I've spoken this season, I've had, you know, quite a few authors because I find the context and the topics and the subject matters that you're tackling, these guys are tackling, are very much modern and a modern bridge, if you want to call it that, for, for anyone who is less aware of what their expectation is of what Africans should look like, feel like, be like, can wonder and experience through your work, right? Even kids' books. Because oftentimes I find this misunderstanding of, you know, without the label New Africans or, you know, well-read or enlightened or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. I think the general world, I don't know if you found this as well, somewhat misses the mark. Because it's either kitsch or you're not. And then they're not sure where to put you. You're, you're just different. So then you're, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's either that version of this. And I worry about the categorization for that reason. Because if we think about the way as Africans, we've ingested other people's culture, it's never been categorized as European or like you're saying, North American, or they were just fictional books, romance novels, why aren't we allowed the same? No, no, no. I don't think it's... And, and that's probably part of the problem, Zizi. And part of what I've been trying to work through in, in a lot of the things that I do is I am not waiting to be accepted at the table of whiteness or European or whatever. If the Americans get to see my work, then good for them. If the French get to see my work, good for them. But I am more excited about the idea, for instance, that the madams is going to be translated into Portuguese by a Mozambican publishing house. That excites me more because they understand the context of my Africa, you know. So I am um, speaking primarily to my fellow Africans. I'm, I'm speaking primarily to, to fellow black people. And if it resonates with people from outside, then well and good, but that's not my primary audience. Agreed with the intention, but your work has done otherwise, though. <laughs> putting, putting it mildly, I, I hear your intention, but, but your work is widely read. 
and consumed. I get that. But what I'm saying is, no, perhaps a lot of the reason why it has become widely read, why why it has opened up is because I'm unapologetic about who I am and who I'm, to- I'm talking to. And I think there's a certain person who actually appreciates that type of candor, you know, that type of honesty. Speaking of, I guess, the reader and who you've been able to reach, knowing that it hasn't been the case, how do you get onto a project like co-authoring a biography by Nelson Mandela? It's actually weird, you know, uh, Alf Kumalo, who I told you I worked with, is the one who actually brought me on that project because he said I was familiar with his archival material because I'd worked with him. And then, of course, now I, was, I had these books that were being shortlisted for this and, and the other. And he liked uh, my writing style. So he said, you know what? You know the archives. You know the photographs. You'll be able to put them in order and be able to write because I, I also knew the anecdote about the stories. So uh, to be honest, 8115, A Prisoner's Home, was more about Winnie than it was about Nelson from the essays that I wrote. It was about the family that Nelson left behind and how they coped for 27 years plus. And you're not a humanitarian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to throw that back at you because you, you've said so many things that speak to... Someone who cares, right? Who cares about a lot of things. But into, I guess, you transitioning from author to now publisher and then editor and curator, where did the publishing need come from from you? Because I guess for for most writers on the continent, we could say, well, most of them have, I guess, in some countries that are less developed or structured than South Africa, they don't have access to, to real publishing. Was that the driving force for you, or was it something else? It was something else. You know, I'd been a writer for many years, and one of the greatest criticisms that I've always given on publishing from some of the countries that I've stayed in, in Kenya, for instance, is where sometimes a potentially good manuscript is not worked on enough to just have that type of kick. You know what I mean? Then, with South African publishers and with Nigerian publishers, well, Nigerian publishers were doing it better than anybody else on the continent. But with South African publishers who were my publishers, I had noticed that they tended to focus on, on trying to see how they can get our books to Frankfurt Book Fair, to, to London Book Fair, you know, but there was no deliberate intention to get them to the rest of the continent where the stories that we're writing actually resonate more. And I'd realized that I'd complained about this quite a bit, but I'm also a person who doesn't believe in just complaining. I believe, okay, if this is not working and nobody is listening, then I need to do. So it came about that the first book that I published actually happened by mistake because I was looking at just looking at adult novels. But the first book that I did was a children's anthology edited by Gambian writer Maimuna Jalo called Story, 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 Come. It's got 12 stories from 12 writers from eight African countries. And it's beautiful children's stories. And I thought to myself, when I was growing up, I wish I had stories like this. So one of the things that I immediately did with that particular project, I got the East and Southern African rights and Lola Shoneyin's Widow Books, who is like, my sister, can you imagine? Lola and I always get confused by people. <laughs> Incredible. I'm serious. We get into spaces. People are like, I remember this guy comes to me at Ake Festival 2019 and he says, yeah, that was a nice 
opening speech that you did just there. <laughs> and it was Lola who, who did the opening speech, right? Ah, no, first he said, that was a nice poem that you did. And I said, ah, I didn't do the poem. And then he said, that was a nice opening speech. And I said, ah, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Because I know people do this with Lola. At at this point, you're like, okay. (laughs) I'm like, okay, you know, all right. So, yeah, so Lola and I have decided that we're going to use the the pronoun we to speak of ourselves, (laughs) of either one of us. Amazing. I love it. But but that's uh, back to what I was saying. So I get this book and it's incredible. And I've got the Eastern Southern African rights and Lola has the West African rights. And what I decided to do with my Eastern Southern African writers, I started thinking about how I want as many children as possible to have access to it. So I started getting it translated into other languages. So far, I've done four. I'm hoping for more within the next year or two. Also then, I got the African rights for Mukoma Wangugi's Mrs. Shaw, which I only read because it was there. It was like I'd run out of reading material. I was never going to read a book called Mrs. Shaw because why did I care about a Mrs. Shaw, you know, much as I love Mkoma. And then I ran out of material to read and I read this book and I said, this book is incredible, but it needs a little bit of editing and it needs, Mrs. Shaw is definitely not the title for this continent. So (laughs) I went and I bought the right and uh, did some edits on it. And then we called it with this card and it's been doing very well. You know, it's been on uh, one read in Nigeria. It's been doing well here in South Africa, in Kenya. So I'm very proud of that particular piece of work. And this year I am, um, the other thing that I've mentioned is I keep wanting us to be able to talk to each other across the continent. So I got the rights for Yara Montero, Angolan writer Yara Montero's book. And I have that coming out very soon. And I also have uh, Noctula Mazubuko's novel, which is a reimagination of Shaka Zulu, mother, you know, uh, through three generations. So, yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. So to speak to your passion for wanting, I guess, the words to be borderless, you've done it in several ways, right? There's the transitional series where you share these artistic encounters. And then there's also the virtual literary festival with the, I love the name, Afro Sun Frontier. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. And that's your way of, I guess, continuing to build bridges across the continent and to have these stories continue and to stay alive. And into the diaspora as well. Yeah, agreed. I find your work is, again, when I say humanitarian through your work, is because a lot of what you do is build bridges. Thank you. I hope that's the intention because that's what I've taken from it. I guess on to the next part of your career that I want to talk about, which is your famous quote or what I feel is famous and was very thought provoking and wanted us to probably talk a little bit more around, do I make you uncomfortable? This is, now the, this is now the feminist part of you. Yeah. What do you have? Well, there's something about the Black African woman's identity that globally sparks something. And even on the continent sparks something too. And I think you're one of 
a few people that have put the question out into the world to ask the question, which is, do I make you uncomfortable? Because I think for most Black women and African women included, it's a question that we all probably want an answer to. Yeah, absolutely. My question is so loaded, but I'll try and simplify it. Why ask the question? I ask the question because I found that being in the world, wherever you may be, including Africa, by the way, if you're a black woman, no matter how good you are at what you do, consistently you have people trying to drag you in the most weirdest of ways and they don't extend the same generosity, say, they would to a white woman who cries. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And if you are doing something very well, then it's like you're trying to show off. Why are you so aggressive? You have to be aggressive. You are not assertive, according to their wording. And I've had situations with even like young men who have not even written so much as like a a, a short story or whatever, who get into a space where they feel that they need to show me that they're a man, you know, and you're just an African woman writer type of thing. And so I was like... Yes, I am. I am. I am African. I am a woman. I am a writer. But I'm more than that in that I refuse to be uncomfortable. I had a conversation with a friend of mine and I was telling her to go hiking with me. And she said to me, oh, don't we need to go with some guy? And I said, no, I always go with one of my girlfriends. And she said, yeah, you know, but sometimes men can be. And I said, you know what? If we get into a space where we're always second guessing ourselves, We will never be equal citizens of this country, of this world. And I am all about equal citizenship. And I will take it if you're not going to give it to me. Because that's not the world that I want to raise my son in or my nieces or my nephews in. I want them to get into a space where they realize that women own half the world, you know. But also in literature in particular on this continent, word for word, women outwriting men, you know? Yes. And we need to acknowledge that. And I think in a lot of fields, I think we're seeing the African woman excel, but yet within our society, not allowed to, it's almost like she has to have this duality where she's allowed to excel in her career. She's allowed to, you know, but that transformation isn't allowed to happen or the evolution thereof isn't even allowed to happen within the society where we talk about, you know, relational society. And I think the duality of that is is starting to create what we're seeing, where we're seeing for the first time globally, right, references outside of Africa of Black women in prominent roles. And we've always had them in African culture, I think. But I think... Absolutely. It's almost like the affirmation we're getting from seeing... Michelle Obama or, you know, the US vice president. Again, you know, to use a word that I hate, embolden, but it's creating space, right, for the African woman who thought she needed to shrink. Unfortunately, if you go on some of his Facebook groups and stuff, the African woman who thinks she needs to shrink is still there. And a lot of it has to do with religion, which has told you need to be respectful, you need to whatever. And there is still in a lot of cultures the idea that 
a woman might be successful and they might do A, B, C, and D, but so long as they are not married or so long as they are not whatever, you know, there's always like a man that centers that conversation. I remember one time I went for a book signing and my partner was there, you know, and this man bought a book and he insisted that he wanted my partner to sign it. And my partner was like, why am I signing? And he says to him, because you've allowed her to write. (laughs) This is interesting. I know, it's incredible. (laughs) I find it odd, the statement, oh, I love that he allows you to be yourself. Exactly. We then seek, it's like, oh, it's it's a permissive society. And there's something, without dragging on too long, because I, I think there's something in it that just rings my soul. And, you know, sometimes you kind of want to go, but hold on a minute, we have the same education now. We are excelling in ways that otherwise the patriarchal society didn't ever allow us to. And we're still finding space to create for ourselves and in, in opening the doors and paving ways for our daughters and nieces and the generation after. I think oftentimes people ask me, why did I start the podcast? And I think one of the things for me was creating a space for our voices as diverse as they are so that people like you don't remain a mystery or are on the back of a book with a lovely picture. And the things that make you and drive you are there so that someone else with a dream can realize that it's possible. Yes. Do do you know what I mean? And I know you do this a lot with your work. And I know you do this like alongside your work with the publishing and the editing. But oftentimes when you're on international platforms, that conversation isn't had in the same way you and I are having this conversation. No, 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 absolutely not. And, you know, we've talked at length with a few people about this on the need for platforms such as yours, because what it does is you and I can have an honest conversation. I am not a representative black woman. I am talking to a sister, full stop, you know, while having a sisterly conversation. Whereas if I am put in this place where I'm supposed to be representing all... Every black woman. 700 million. Who's ever written, who's <laughs> ever written a book. Exactly, who's ever written a book, you know? Who is the, um, first, who's uh, the uh, first to do something, <laughs> you know, recognized? It's a lot of pressure. It, it's a lot of pressure and it's unnecessary, you know? And it bothers me because it also goes to then when one of us does something wrong. So when I fall, suddenly I am then told that I have let black women down. The world can't just say, I've just let Zugi down or whatever. Uh, suddenly I'm like, oh, you, you, you're taking back the race. What is that all about? Again, who's controlling the narrative, right? Exactly. Who controls the narrative of how, one, we see ourselves, two, how that information is communicated to us, and three, what do we do about it when it's, when it's put forward? So is there a rebuttal to, to some of these discussions? You are releasing something on Day of the African Child. Yes. I guess I, you know, you've kind of hinted at your passion for the African child. And to be honest, it's, it's a passion of mine too. So my day job, which is Malay, we donate a percentage of our profits to helping kids realize their potential from disadvantaged communities. So we take for granted that we had literate parents who could help us with homework. There are kids who are incredibly talented who don't have those same resources. And unfortunately, the system fails them as a result. You've consistently kept 
your passion for uplifting, I want to say, the next generation. If you can speak to why that is and how perhaps we can help support that cause, because I, I, I think continuing to push in that direction is, is perhaps one of the ways that we can see a better continent. Oh, thank you. I realize how lucky that you and I are. But uh, I also do think one of the things that I look at in my life is I had access to books, for instance. I had access to stories that helped shape me, that helped me question certain things. And it's so important to have citizens who question. Citizens who question can then say, why haven't we had water in Melville for four days? Yes. <laughs> and call the municipality. You know what I mean? Uh, Joburg municipality. But citizens who don't question say, oh, this has been happening for so long. What, what can we do about it? And they leave it like that. And so my whole thing was, usually a child, a middle-class child has access to books. They know where to find a library. Their schools have library. Sometimes they have libraries in their homes. But I wanted to get into a space where we have libraries in, in rural areas and low-income communities. So the first one that I did was in Nairobi, in the Krogocho, which is like an informal settlement, and by a school. And the school is then custodian of those books. But the children from the school have access to the books. But you see, I didn't want it to be like a museum where we just have books in there and, and that's it. I wanted them to know that stories are living, breathing things. So one of the things that I do with them is, because unfortunately in a lot of uh, Anglophone African countries, our exams are still taught in English and stuff. So one of the things that I did was I sourced some material from across the continent, from publishers in Nigeria, from Botswana, from South Africa. And I said, and I put in this library and I'm doing the same here and I've... I'm seeking some funding to do the same for Zimbabwe. And hopefully, like, if I can get, like, five, ten libraries by the end of the year in rural communities and low income, that would be great. In order for the children to know that these things are, stories are living, breathing things, I get them, I, I also do audio of some of the stories. And the children who are slower can then be able to follow on the page while they're listening. And the other thing that I do is every quarter, I get the children to perform one of their favorite stories. They do their direction, everything, everything. And then each of the children in the whole cast, from the director to the scriptwriter to the stage designer to everything, they get a copy of a book to start their very own little library. Incredible. That's so beautiful. Where can our listeners find you? Your listeners can find me on Instagram. They can find me on Facebook. I've got my website, www.zugisovayana.com. They can find me by email. You know, I'm actually quite active. The only place that I'm not really active on is on Twitter, but Instagram and Facebook. I am there. And they can pick up the Black Pimpernel, Nelson Mandela on the Run, which has just come out this month or last month. Yeah, last month. So in the UK, they can pick it up at any good bookstores near you. It's published by Pushkin Press, and I understand the distribution has been pretty good. In fact, one of my friends in Nigeria just posted that they've just received their copy. And I'm trying to, here in South Africa, it's going to be distributed by Jonathan Ball. I know that in Kenya, Prestige Books has ordered some copies and they should be in bookstores now. I am also trying to chat to either Weta Books or, or Narrative Landscape for a distribution deal in, in Nigeria. 
But I also know that in Ghana, they have some copies already. So I'm just looking at other other countries. I'm looking at Kigali. I'll talk to Huza Press and see what it is we can come up with. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. It's been an absolute delight having you on the show. It was so wonderful to be here. And thank you so much for the platform. And I look forward to discussing with you about your distribution, that thing that we're talking about earlier. Yes, perfect. Thank you so much. A pleasure, Zizi. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Third Culture Africans. We are building a community of leaders and game changers and would love you to join in the conversation on thirdcultureafricans.com. Subscribe for news, for tips and more useful resources on today's topic and more episodes to ignite and inspire your entrepreneurial journey. Carry on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Third Culture Africans. Your ratings and reviews are important to us, so please leave one on your favorite streaming platform and help us amplify our voices. Until next time, you are valid, you are strong, and you are just getting started.